Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we're continuing to stretch the seams of our breeks, keeping one foot each in music and books, and taking another look at the Ladbroke Grove scene of Hawkwind and Michael Moorcock. This time in the fab company of Joe Banks, author of Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia. Joe's website, daysoftheunderground.com, describes the book thusly. Avatars of the underground, figureheads of the free festival scene and heralds of punk, Hawkwind were one of the bands that defined the 1970s. At the height of their artistic and commercial powers, Hawkwind channelled and amplified the era's psychic tenor via a science fiction sensibility, mind-blowing visuals and their unique brand of deep space psychedelia. It's a beast of a book that's part biography, track-by-track albums appraisal, interview records and a series of essays that look closely at the 70s origins and influences of the band as well as their relationship with the London counterculture and science fiction scenes and how they affected pop culture and it's also chock full of Murcock. So, sit back, spark up a bong and join us in Derry and Tom's as we look at Murcock, Hawkwind and some other bits and bobs along the way. Uh, we are back in Derry and Tom's roof garden, and I'm joined today by Living Hawkwind Encyclopedia, Joe Banks, author of Days of Un- oh, Fuck's sake. You see, this is where the editing comes in. I've already flipped my, <laughs> flipped my lines. Um, author of Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia. So welcome, Joe. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Normally, when we kick off one of these shows, we tend to start off with, what was your introduction to Moorcock? Because it's a moorcock flavoured podcast. Sure. Yeah. But of course, what we've found as we've gone along, and I think this is our 31st show now, is that we tend to find that there's like a Venn diagram where people discover Moorcock. And one of those circles and entries is Moorcock himself. Another one is Hawkwind. And then you get other like little circles, like weirdly... While some people discover Moorcock through Hawkwind and some people discover Hawkwind through Moorcock, you get some people discovering Moorcock through Blue Oyster Cult or other strange gateways into things. Or, much like myself, I discovered Moorcock through my granddad giving me loads of old books and then discovered Hawkwind somewhere along the way. Where do you fit into that Venn diagram? Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually, because... um... I've told the story a few times now, but um, I mean, the, the reason I got into Hawkwind or, you know, first hearing Hawkwind was through my older brother. It's a classic story of, you know, the older brother with the, the record collection and mm. hearing it through his bedroom and um, bedroom wall. And uh, he had a copy of Warrior on the edge of time. And I, I, it, it's difficult now for me to remember whether looking at the sleeve and thinking, oh, there's this name Moorcock. Whether that actually kind of was at the point at which I, I kind of first heard of him, or whether it was only actually then when I started reading his books, I suddenly thought, "Hang on a sec, this is familiar." And then kind of going back to the to the album, but um, certainly in terms of of, of kind of Moorcock himself and, and his books, um, I, I was a very, I still am a very slow reader, and I didn't really start reading fiction, you know, until until I was I don't know ten or eleven or something like that, mm. and. Um, the first thing I did was was to plow through all of the the target novelizations of Doctor Who. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. 
and um, which which is probably the same for a lot of lot of people uh, my age. But um, then I had a friend who, who who literally kind of said, "Oh, I've got this book out of the the library. Um, I think you might like it." And it was you know quite a small paperback, but it still took me quite a long time to read. But I got through it, and at the end, I thought, "Yeah, that was great." And um, and that was the bull and the spear. Ah. So that was that was the first Moorcock that I actually read. But as I say, at some point around the same time, I think it must have occurred to me that this was also the Moorcock who was on uh, Warrior on the Edge of Time. So yeah, so it's 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 lost slightly in the in the mists of time, but but that's that's basically my introduction to him. It's interesting that you mentioned the Target Doctor Who books because I think you know when we're talking about Venn diagrams and when people get into certain things, I think there's certainly uh, certainly English people or British people of our generation who became voracious readers really started with those target books because I, I had piles and piles and piles of them. To my eternal shame, I I think I had about 35 or 40 of them and I would sit and read them in an armchair in front of uh, our coal fire in the kitchen and I would have them piled up next to me because they were quite a, quite, quite a quick read, weren't they? And yeah. also I loved the covers I absolutely adored the covers, um, and some of them are absolutely burned into my memory. The cover of, uh, I think it was called Moonbase. They didn't, I would, I was no. The TV episode was called Moonbase, and it was called Doctor Who and the Cybermen. That cover, with um, the sprayed silver wetsuit um, Cybermen from Invasion and Revenge of the Cybermen, I absolutely adored that cover, and it's absolutely terrible. But I took them all to uh, a shop in Hull called Hull Special Effects that did comics and board games and role-playing games. And I sold them all for like six quid so I could afford to get the Dungeons & Dragons player's handbook. (laughs) (laughs) And now, thinking back, what would I rather have? Well, frankly, I'd rather have all those Target books again. But they were were great, weren't they? That is... It's so... Sorry to interrupt, but that is... um, That's so funny because that was the first Doctor Who book I read. The right. Doctor Who and the Cybermen, yep. and you're like Patrick Trout, and, and and even that, and that's that's actually not the 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 right type of Cyberman for, for yeah, that. That's right. Yeah. So, but but like you say, it's it's kind of the, the classic look with the the zip and everything. But I, I think you're right. I mean, for me, you know, something like Hawkwind, Michael Moorcock, Doctor Who of the seventies are all totally on the same continuum. They all feel like they're coming from the same kind of universe in a way. Mm. When we were talking about cover designs for for days of the underground the book i i was very very keen on doing like a target pastiche um you know but with kind of you know hawkwind instead yeah and uh that, that didn't happen but i mean you know I, I i totally associate them as the same kind of thing yeah well i mean the, the existing cover is a, a beautiful cover and it's very very striking very eye-catching um who's the artist so that's john coolthart um who actually is a Hawkwind artist. He did um, a number of their covers in the early 80s. Probably the most famous one is Chronicle of the Black Sword, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously the the, the big Moorcock album. Um, and he was he was literally only about 18 or 19 when he was doing them. Right. Um, I, I, I kind of read somewhere a friend of his who'd been at, you know, kind of six four college, six one college with him or something, said that his entire ambition in life was to draw covers for Hawkwind and he had exercise books full of all of this stuff. And, um, and lo and behold, yeah, I mean, he, he had got in contact with Dave Brock somehow and sharing some of his stuff. And, uh, 
and that's what then happened. So he does some of their their covers from the the early eighties, and then drifts off and does other stuff. Um, I mean, you can tell, you know, that they are the work of a young man, um, whereas kind of his style has now obviously evolved a lot more. But it's still kind of recognisable from those those early eighties covers, and and so getting him to do it was just uh, you know kind of quite an honor actually um mm. you know and he just produced something amazing very quickly and as he said he thought he would never you know draw a hawkwind you know illustration again but he obviously had a lot of ideas that just kind of built up over time and, and that's what he produced yeah and he's actually done some specific mococ artwork as well hasn't he I, I i checked out his um his website a while back i think i was i was as usual when you're on the mococ book trail there was a Moorcock book published by Savoy, I think, um, and I was kind of going down that rabbit hole, probably looking at Jade Design, um, John Davis' site, or, or something like that, and I came across some John Coulter artwork, and I looked at his site, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. His work is really fantastic, and it's it's an absolutely beautiful cover. But yeah. just um, quickly going back to kind of that the way we kick off and the way we mm-hmm. develop our reading habits and our taste for things, you said that kind of 70s Doctor Who and Hawkwind and Moorcock all kind of exist and are all of of a space. And it's mm. absolutely true, isn't it? Because, of course, pre-internet days and, and before um, you could, you know, just access the entire Doctor Who library, the entire mm. original Doctor Who library on, I don't know, initially VHS or then DVD, and now it's all on BritBox, which renders all of my Doctor Who DVD collection completely redundant, which is really <laughs> annoying. Um, but it's all there on BritBox. And, um, yeah, so having Doctor Who and the Cybermen and that wonderful image of the Cyberman, but also the black and white head and shoulders of Patrick Troughton behind it, it was my only touch point with any Doctor prior to to um, Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Because Tom Baker was my Doctor. I think my my very, very earliest memory of television is a spider on Sarah Jane Smith's back, which I know now is um, Planet of the Spiders with John Pertwee, but it's, it's, it's the most vivid early memory I've got of an image of, of of television, and you can access all this stuff now. But it was it was a real it was a real touch point, and it and it all, almost it went to that sense as a kid that you were accessing something um, mysterious and almost uh, secret because you know it was it was locked away in the mists of time on television but this was a route into that kind of thing and i think that's what gave me a, a flavor of of what was possible with with things like um, with fiction because of yeah. course you know that there are as many michael moorcock books as there are target books so i've often kind of talked about how getting into Moorcock leads you down a rabbit hole, like a Pokemon-style hunt for all 90 or 100 volumes, and you start with the bull and the spear, and of course, that's the second Corum sequence. Mm. So straight away, there's the element of mystery. Well, hang on, there's some stuff gone before here. How do I How do I track it down? How do I find it out? But yeah, I've never really thought about it before until you mentioned that, but Target books were my first pull mm. at that, at, at tracking them all down and mm. getting hold of them all. Yeah, I think that's right, and and because you you get the books and you would have a list in the front of what had gone before and mm. other books had been written, and you know you get that for Moorcock, and obviously you get it for for the the Doctor Who books, and you're right, this idea of accessing the universe, and 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 also that you know it was not possible to see these old shows, you know the books was the only artifact, if you like, that you had. I mean, yeah. this is before like you know Doctor Who Weekly as well, and yes. in a way, there's a, there's a real parallel there with you know, kind of music um, 
in the way that, as you say, now everything is accessible. But in the 1970s, you know, albums were deleted often, you know, within a few years. Mm. And it was, it was, you know, it was very easy to, you know, there might be a group and they had a couple of albums that you could find in the record shop, but you were aware that they had this other catalogue, but it just wasn't available anywhere. Mm. Now, Hotwin actually, uh, I think all of their stuff actually pretty much stayed on catalogue. So that wasn't an issue for them. But I, I remember, you know, after I'd stopped being obsessed with Doctor Who and, <laughs> and uh, and such like you know moving on to music then really starting to get into certain groups like i don't know something like van de graaf generator or something like that and, yeah. and just not being able to access all of their catalog and then that draws you into the whole universe of record fairs which is again you know this mm-hmm. you know kind of, and i suppose there's a parallel there for you with you know the the, the private universe of dungeons and dragons i mean i never got into that but mm. it, it, it's the same it's these kind of subcultures running in parallel with each other which is which is fascinating in a way and something which you know doesn't seem to exist these days or it does exist but it's it's the sheer accessibility of it these days which i think people of a certain age find a bit disorientating and it's like well how do you find your yeah. space in this you know because yeah. like you say you can sit there you know the night and spend 6 hours kind of going down a rabbit hole and you know by morning you're an expert in this subject the kind of thing that it would have taken you years to build up that kind of knowledge before when you're having to do it on your own yeah absolutely and in a way there is something wonderful about being able to access all of these things again but there's also something mildly disappointing yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) back 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 in the day me and my mate Stu, we became obsessed with an album called elastic rock by a band called nucleus we were absolutely obsessed by it and we, we we listened to it like for months and months and months and we could never get hold of anything else by Nucleus. We never knew anything about them. We'd never heard of them. It's just something I came across in, in a second-hand record shop in Hull, the Golden Eldy Record Store. And we, I bought it because it was called Elastic Rock, and I thought it was an interesting title, and it was a, it was an interesting cover. And it was really, really fantastic, jazz-infused, prog, um, and, and really, really great groove. Um, and then just a couple of years ago, I was on... Spotify, of all things, and you know, notwithstanding the fact that Spotify, it isn't that great for for musicians, but Spotify is something I, I I use from time to time, and I found out that there are like half a dozen Nucleus albums on there, mm. and there's a little biography. Mm. I was like, oh, fantastic, and but it did take some of the magic away, <laughs> in a weird way, of of them not being that strange, mysterious band that strange mysterious album that i found in a record shop and went down like a little mini rabbit hole with them yeah yeah it's that thing like i said that that you could have pursued that yourself and it might have taken you a few years to actually track down those albums and to find out exactly who was playing on it and who i think it's ian carr isn't it is the main guy yes, and who yeah. this guy was and you know whereas now like i say it's just it's just served up for you and you know there's that moment of oh great and great, I can now listen to all these albums and it's a bit like, oh, I don't really want to now. Yeah. You know, the, the chase is, is part of what makes the music in a way. You know, that's what really imbues certain albums with, with memories is, yeah. is kind of thinking about where you bought it, how long it took for you to find it you know, all of that stuff. But anyway, this is this is real kind of old guy talk. You know, it is old guy talk. not living in but, this world anymore. You know? But one of, the, one of the great things about this podcast is... And again, this podcast is is available on Spotify. And one of the interesting things about Spotify is it breaks down your listenership. 
And you may not be entirely surprised to learn (laughs) that our demographic is pretty much the listenership of this podcast. And when it comes to uh, favourite artists, Hawkwind are in the top four. (laughs) Should be top one, surely. Yeah, but weirdly, (laughs) uh, Bruce, it it, it doesn't... um, I don't think it it stratifies them in terms of first, second, third or fourth. It just shows you for all of the the most listened to artists. And Hawkwind and weirdly Bruce Springsteen, which isn't really my cup of tea, is in there as well. Mm. And in in terms of younger listenership, I think we have a few 18 to 24 year olds, but pretty much everybody else is is at our end of the bracket. (laughs) So I don't think we need to worry about uh, about getting into old man stuff. (laughs) Fair enough. enough. Yeah. All right. So just thinking back again. so, So you discover Hawkwind by hearing it through. Your brother's bedroom wall, mm-hmm. and and getting in. What what kind of other things we are we are getting exposed to that became enduring, or was it really Hawkmoon? Sorry, Hawkmoon. God, huh. Hawkwind above all else. Um, I mean, my brother was playing, you know, the the kind of classic rock albums, and a lot of those albums, um, you know, have just totally kind of stayed with me. Specifically, things like the first two Queen albums. Mm. Um, which which I could do a, an entire kind of lengthy rant about how I think I uh, just stupendously underrated and probably unknown by a lot of people as well. But that 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 kind of is almost more cocky and rock in a way. Uh, I, I I think of it as. Um, but then you've got uh, the kind of the big three seventies Pink Floyd albums, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals, um, Judas Priest, Sin After Sin. Well. Which, which for me, is the foundation stone of of, of kind of modern heavy metal, really. Yeah. Um, I, I would argue, anyway. Uh, but he was also into things like you know, kind of Deep Purple and Yes, and people like that. Haven't stayed with me quite as much. And you know, I mean, initially I would be playing his. He had a quite a decent collection of seven inch singles, which he just kept downstairs, and and anybody could play. And that was mostly of of Slade. Actually, he was a massive Slade fan. Yeah. So um, so they they've kind of stayed with me as well, but. You know, from from there, there's also people like he um, he had mates had made tapes of Sabbath and Budgie, who was who were two kind of major bands for me as well. Um, and and it, it really is, you know, kind of like a lot of people, I've been through lots and lots of different types of types of music. You know, I've gone through my you know kind of indie phase and techno phase and all the rest of it. But but by this point in my life, I've now completely circled back to that that early kind of. I don't want to call it classic rock because that's that's kind of kind of got a slightly pejorative kind of you know sound to it these days. But it's it is that kind of specific specific sound of of the seventies. You know, I mean the period I always think of is nineteen sixty eight to nineteen seventy five is 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 kind of for me. You know, there's been oodles of amazing music obviously made since then, but that is the period I I find myself coming back to. Though though interestingly, Hawkwind one of those bands who didn't just kind of peak in 1975 i mean they made warrior which for many people is their their best album but you know after that you have the entire calvert period the robert calvert period which is Mm. also incredible and and you know and they continue making innovative music you know right up today until today really i mean you know they still sound unique and a lot of their stuff in the, the 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 80s was 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 fantastic as well some of the stuff in the 90s as well so they they've really continued to be this kind of utterly unique force of in within British music. 
Yeah. It, it, again, it's funny you should mention uh, Budgie and Judas Priest uh, because we appear to have a lot of parallels um, to mm. some degree. But for me, with Judas Priest, it was stained class. Um, I actually wore that album out, wore it out. <laughs> I've still got the same same vinyl, but it is so worn out. It's um, it's probably unlistenable now. And uh, I was only listening to Bread Fan the other day. I found uh, a live on YouTube. There's there's a live performance of Bread Fan from some Welsh TV show, and it's it's absolutely terrific. I don't, I don't think Budgie ever got the credit that they truly deserved. The Welsh Rush, or were Rush the Canadian <laughs> the Canadian Budgie, you know. It's, it's, Absolutely terrific band, yeah. But it. so Hawkwind, of course, a lot of people listen to this show um, because they enjoy the conversation about Morcock. But and there are younger people listen to the show, and there are people who you know probably know very little about Hawkwind. So where do they sit in kind of the pantheon of of that that British late sixties, early seventies rock? Because quick story, I was listening to um, I've, I've got a, a playlist of early. Uh, Hawkwind, because I think they do definitely sit in specific modes of Hawkwind. They have mm-hmm. they have their ages, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Hurry on Sundown came on, and Phil, my partner, went, "Oh, I remember this." I said, "How do you remember you? You've been like three years old." She went, "It's cooler, Shaker." <laughs> and her only frame of reference for, for, for Hurry on Sundown was mm-hmm. was the Cooler Shaker cover version, and I'm sure probably about ten years ago she did that with Hush. When Cool Shaker covered Hush as well, so you know, for, for the for people who are who are uninitiated, have, sell Hawkwind and their place in British music at that mm-hmm. period of time specifically. Gosh, okay, that's a that's a big question. Um, so Hawkwind come out of the the very dog end of the nineteen sixties. They form in Labrook Grove in nineteen sixty nine, and they start off as more of a kind of community freak project really they're very you know they're renowned for kind of playing free gigs for playing benefits and the kind of music they're making is this kind of weird cross between you know kind of urban folk blues which is stuff like hurry on sundown and and what i would call barbarian psychedelia so psychedelia <laughs> is kind of you know the, the first wave of psych has basically disappeared of its own ass and you know has become very whimsical and and has either mutated into progressive rock or a lot of the bands have kind of renounced it and have gone a bit more rootsy but hawkwind kind of really take the dying embers of british psychedelia and, and kind of really warm it up again if you like but in a slightly different direction and very quickly they evolve this sound which is completely unique in in the British rock scene. There are clearly parallels of what was happening in Germany with what is, you know, referred to as Krautrock, but they were literally the only band in Britain who developed this very metronomic, hypnotic, propulsive sound, often based around very simple chord patterns, um, very certain style of guitar playing, uh, and a lot of a very kind of evocative electronics so while you know progressive rock is is starting to you know think oh the moog's fantastic you know we can or the mellotron's fantastic you know we can pretend to sound like an orchestra with this you know when they're going in the opposite direction they're using electronics as as kind of raw frequencies as a, a way of creating atmospheres and you know creating sound design in a way as part of the music and that in itself is very evocative and one of the key elements for them starting to become 
referred to as a space rock band, you know, a, a science fiction rock band, because their music actually sounds like a kind of, to me anyway, like an aural equivalent of science fiction. It's got that kind of vibe to it. And so anyway, they, they very quickly then start to kind of build a following um, from Labrick Grove through the underground. The, the big thing also about Hawkwind is that while you have bands like, I don't know, the Pink Fairies who were in a similar position, Hawkwind went out into, into, into the land, into every corner of Britain, toured relentlessly, and they, they really took the counterculture such as it was, you know, all around the country, you know, even if it's like as simple as taking copies of the underground magazines like IT and, and friends with them, and, and if Nick Turner's to be believed, they had a copious supply of liquid LSD, which they would also doll out to their <laughs> early audiences, uh, which I'm sure made a big difference. And, you know, it's not an overstatement to say that they, they were the, the actual heralds of the, of the underground around the country in many ways. You know, uh, the media, of course, had kind of written off psychedelia. They'd written off the counterculture at this point as a, a failed experiment. And, you know, they were all bowing down at the, the feet of people like Yes and Led Zeppelin. Uh, but Hawkwind, you know, could have, were not on message and were still very much, you know, pushing this whole countercultural idea. So, yeah, I mean, where they fit in British music is they are, they're kind of unique. They're not a progressive rock band. They're not a hard rock band. Um, you know, they, they they have their own niche. And they're, that kind of metronomic sound is comparable to, you know, maybe some very early can stuff. Certainly people like Noi bit of Amondul 2, um, but there's nobody at all doing this kind of thing in, in Britain. And really what makes them, you know, such a, an amazing band for me is that if they'd have just done that music on its own, they would have been, you know, it's great, it's great music. But the way they then combine it with science fiction, with kind of Moorcock's input particularly, you know, the way that they become the ultimate science fiction band at the same time as producing this incredible music, the two go together. And that's why, to me, you know, they're such a, a special band and really still to this day, you know, undervalued in terms of the, the cultural impact they had um, in, in Britain and its, and its various kind of youth subcultures in the 1970s. Yeah, that's that's one of the really interesting and frustrating things as well about them, isn't it? Is in the same way that um, perhaps critics, even to this day, are quite sneery of things like science fiction and fantasy, and that's I think something Moorcock put up with a lot in his career in the sixties and seventies. But there's a reference in your book where you, I think, after Silver Machine is released and it's on the charts, and they're being beamed into every home on top of the pops for several weeks with that wonderfully vivid video with with mm. Lemmy and with Stacia um kind of in the foreground in her silver paint looking really really striking and you re you refer to a review where Melody makes the the joke band that made it and to to, to some degree it still feels like notwithstanding the fact that there's there have been more recent critical reappraisals of all sorts of British 70s bands and styles there's still a degree to which inverted commas, bunny ears, serious music fans in the last 40 years have never really given bands like Hawkwind and even bands like, I don't know, Uriah Heep kind mm. of the, the credit that they really deserve because I think Uriah Heep were not a similar band necessarily in terms of tone but similar in that they changed so rapidly that you could never really pin them down and keep, and, and keep on top of what they were and what they were performing mm. and when you were writing this book, how much did you take into account the fact that there's, there's still this 
kind of snobbish dismissal in in a lot of circles of, of bands like Hawkwind. Well, I mean, this was really one of the main motivations for you know writing the book, and it, it's but it's not the same as just kind of saying no, 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 they're really good, really, their music's really great. It was to try and do something a little bit more ambitious than that, and try to, as I say, position them as you know, not just an important musical force, but a cultural force in the 70s as well, to the extent it's like, you can't really ignore this because if you look at how influential they've been, you know, particularly, you know, uh, for something like punk and post-punk in particular, mm. uh, enormously influential, you, you can't just keep writing them off. But it's, it's funny what you say there. And one of my, my favourite quotes from, from Michael Moorcock that I've, I've used a lot of times is from a conversation he had with Alan Moore. And he he said that rock and roll and science fiction are the two great despised art forms of the 20th century. Mm. And that's right. And then Hawkwind, you know, firmly have their feet planted in both of those camps. So, you know, that tells you why there was such a problem, you know, for, for, for them being kind of um, taken seriously. Mm. Um, you know, the idea that a band would use science fiction as a, as a, you know, it's, it's, they use it as a vehicle for, for other things. You know, they're not just some band kind of pretending to be Star Trek on acid, singing about aliens and, and robots and, you know, flying to the stars. There's kind of elements of that in their music. But if you, if, you know, almost always the, the, the kind of science fiction elements have a double meaning, mm. you know, in the same way that, you know, the other great artist of the 70s who, who does this is David Bowie. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of his stuff... It's suffused with science fictional ideas, but because, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, he he was kind of lauded for this. You know, yeah. this is amazing. It's a, whereas, you know, because of the way that Hawkwind looked, because of where they came from, you know, the fact that they were avowedly, you know, not a musician's band, mm. you know, that they 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 were like this traveling carnival. They were, you know, even things which are, remain a little unsaid, the fact that they were more of a working class band than, you know, the progressive groups. Uh, they were older than a lot of these guys as well. Um, I think the critics were just intimidated by the whole package. Mm. They didn't really know what to do with it. And, and there's a, I think there's another quote from, I can't remember where it's from, but one journalist kind of saying how, you know, the record company and record executives kind of rue this idea of, how do you market a cult? How do you market a cult band? Which in, in these days, you know, people love the idea of kind of something which is cult and cool. Whereas in those days, it was like, how do we flatten everything out into the mainstream and sell as many units as possible? Whereas Hawkwind were totally always their own thing. And, you know, you know, they were the biggest cult band in Britain, perhaps the biggest cult band Britain's ever seen. That's one of the reasons why they're so difficult to, not that you want to, but they're so difficult to pigeonhole for the people who generally pigeonhole things. Hmm. Because, you know, a, a lot of journalism falls often falls back on X, this new band sound like X crossed with Y. Um, we saw it with movies for donkeys years, didn't we? Something like The Matrix comes out and everybody says this film is like, you know, The Matrix of this genre or, or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just kind of really shit hackery. And, you know... I, I've I've never really kind of had much time for for music journalists ever since I went to um, where did I go I think it was Reading Festival and uh, I took too much acid and I was in the middle of the field watching um, who was it Fishbone I was watching Fishbone in the middle of a mosh pit in an afternoon at Reading Festival 
and um, I, I, a few days later, I was at my friend's house and I read um, that week's NME, and it said uh, Fishbone performed to a sea of bored faces. And you've always got that thing where uh, uh, music journalists kind of go with they always went with the style and the fashion of the time. And I'm sure there were good ones out there, but the majority of it was really staid and really kind of trend focused. Mm-hmm. So I think. Undoubtedly, a lot of the the journalists around there were either snobs or pricks or both. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just looking back, uh, I mean, again, they had different stages, different band members came and went. They always looked a bit dangerous. <laughs> they always looked a little bit rough around the edges and a little yeah. bit dangerous. So while Emerson, Lake and Palmer were driving their own, you know, independent, massive, articulated lorries with E's, L's and P's on the top and everything else, Hawkwind looked like the kind of band that if you were out of your mind in a field, could well be the guy out of his mind in a field next to you, or, th- mm. or, or three people down. And, and that must have been such a massive appeal to people at the time, to get away from something. And was the was the term space rock coined for Hawkwind, and did anybody else ever come anywhere near it? I think, um, I think space rock, I think space rock, I think the first use of the term I came across was to describe a a bird single, Mr. Spaceman, which is like, <laughs> which is utterly not space rock, but it was about like some guy kind of being abducted by flying saucer. But um, I think I think Pink Floyd, the early Pink Floyd stuff, is undoubtedly a major influence on on Hawkwind. Um, you know, stuff like astronomy, donomy, and yeah. uh, you know, set the contrast of the heart of the sun. These are clearly big influences on Hawkwind, and they were described as a space rock. The Floyd were described as space rock at the time. And I think they very quickly wanted to shake that tag off. And I think by 1970, when the first Hawkwind album comes out, which isn't particularly a space rock album, um, but they were, the, the Floyd were very keen to divest themselves of this space rock term. And, and Hawkwind were very keen, I think, to, to kind of find an image. And so, as I say, even though that first album doesn't doesn't particularly sound like a space rock album the advert for it um has them uh, the, the picture that's on the inside of the cover of the first album has it's it's superimposed on like this kind of very like dark planet that they seem to be standing on and and the tagline just is space rock a new album right. and they had clearly at this point thought right this is this is kind of what we're going to hitch our wagon to um but it is interesting that it's not until you know, the second album in search of space with its incredible packaging and mm. obviously the title, but that you actually get a, 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 an album, a, a song, which is in any way, you know, science fictional, which is of course, master of the universe. But by this point, you know, they've been, you know, they've fallen in with, with Moorcock and, and even more so with Robert Calvert, mm. um, who these are two figures who are kind of entwined in their history, if you like. So it's at this point that they really do, become a space rock band but also you've got like the opening track you shouldn't do that 15 minutes of you know metronomic trance rock at this point it's like yes this is space rock space rock has has arrived in britain and 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 really i mean somebody else asked me you know recently how do you how do you define space rock and and it really is how much do they sound like hawkwind Mm -hmm. i mean you know how much do they sound like you know you shouldn't do that because that is absolutely the uh, i don't know the, the rosetta stone of space rock it really is well the wonderful thing about that space rock tag is and, and one of the wonderful things about doing this podcast is that I've, I've i've made contact with people for example um friend of the show 
Dave, hello Dave, who um, his project uh, Cernus, and I love saying Cernus because it's got an umlaut above the O, so I can pronounce it like <laughs> like uh, whole style uh, Cernus. Um, he he actually openly describes his project as space rock and Hawkwind inspired space rock, and he's uh, he won't mind me saying this. He's a guy in his mid to late twenties wearing flares in San Francisco, and he's he's making space rock. And it's wonderful. So, so that that thread is there, and there are people out there who are embracing it and loving it. And and Harquin definitely have this this place, not just in, in British music, but but internationally as well. But just going mm-hmm. back to something you said earlier about um, that they came out of the Ladbrook Grove scene, and of course, Mocock himself was heavily involved in that Ladbrook Grove scene, wasn't he? It wasn't just the fact that Jerry Cornelius lived on Ladbrook Grove. Mocock was was living that scene and he was he was involved with Harquin from a from a very early stage wasn't he yeah um <laughs> I actually just read something today some quote from Moorcock saying that you know living in Labrook Grove I mean you couldn't move for rock and roll bands I mean they were they were everywhere but um he becomes uh aware of Hawkwind through Robert Calvert who 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 is kind of becomes Hawkwind's kind of you know, space poet, if you like. So Robert Calvert was writing for one of the underground magazines that was based out of Labrick Grove called Friends with a Z. Mm. And um, I think he interviewed Michael Moorcock and obviously got chatting to him. And, you know, it was a very small place. They probably kept on seeing each other in the same cafes. And at one point he says, you should come along and see this band that I've started performing with. Or I think he may not have even started performing with them at the time, but it was... He was friends with Nick Turner and it was Nick, you know, and he said, you know, come and see my mate's band. And so that's about kind of mid-1971 when Moorcock becomes involved with them. And, you know, they're they're very, you know, they're really kind of chuffed by this because they, you know, even then he was, you know, the, the guy that everybody was reading, particularly all of the Eternal Champion novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Brock and Turner, big fans of those. And, you know, they were saying, oh, you know, do you fancy doing something with us and you know he was very happy to do that um although at the same time he didn't want to step on bob calvert's toes because calvert had started you know doing recitite uh, recite, uh, poems um <laughs> with, with Wind, um you know and he didn't want to kind of move into that that space but the thing about uh, calvert was that he was in and out of various mental institutions and um so uh, there was at one stage when he had been possibly sectioned or had gone himself and um a Moorcock kind of stood in for him as it were and I think the very first thing he does with them is Sonic Attack mm. which is you know this absolutely uh you know um a big track in 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 the Hawkwind catalogue uh he and he also performs with them they, they do a series of gigs under the uh the concrete arches of the Westway and the Westway is the I think it's the raised part of the M4 that goes literally through um, you know, Labrick Grove and would have been quite a new development at the time in, in 1971. And uh, so various bands, including Hawkwind, started playing gigs under the arches and Moorcock famously uh, performed with them there. But I mean, he he was also, I think there used to be like a, you know, a secondhand book market under the arches and Moorcock was more often than not, he was on the stall there, you know, selling books yeah. to raise money for new worlds. You know, um, he was... You know, he was totally, you know, in that environment. He was a total part of the culture. 
Yeah, he had a hand in so much, didn't he? And and, and mm-hmm. kind of the the promotion, not just of the new world authors, but but also that kind of um, nurturing part of 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 his role in so many different ways is one of the big appeals about him. And and how you know I think he's described as a, a, a Alan Moore described him as a as a huge bear of a man, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 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 how he. You know, that's that's his big thing. I mean, he takes over, you know, the editorship of New Worlds in 63 and he clearly has a very specific program in mind and he needs to gather people around him. He needs to find like minded people. And so, you know, he is obviously as an editor, that's part of your role is to be nurturing. And he was clearly very open to things. You know, he, he loved the idea of collaborating with somebody like Hawkwind. He, he loved Hawkwind, you know, for because they weren't like any other bands. He famously describes them as barbarians of electronics. Yeah. You know, or or you know, this this band that had been on a on a kind of generation ship for a thousand years and suddenly emerged blinking into the daylight and had all gone mad. Yeah. Um, you know, and he, he projected very much onto them. I and mean, when I when I spoke to him, or or rather I had a big long email exchange with him and I, you know, I said to him, you know, in some ways, did you feel like you had invented Hawkwind? You know, because there was such a more cocky and creation in a way and he said you know i have to say yes yeah um and it was almost as though he had met like uh you know somebody in his own novel you know he had come across them and suddenly they become real and and that you know is you see that again and again in a lot of moorcock novels the way that he injects himself in a way into the story and it's the idea that you know he's not kind of writing these stories it's more like he's encountering them encountering them and kind of just kind of you know writing them down um you know they're not works of fiction he, he's all about creating you know a multiverse you know yeah. that, obviously that's his thing yeah and he works that backwards as well doesn't he by having them present at some of jerry cornelius's six-week long parties at mm-hmm. ladbrook grove when jerry's particularly depressed after mm-hmm. some encounter with una person or, or something like that yeah yeah it's uh it's it's uh, a fascinating thing the fact that he's, he's managed to stay involved with so many things and of course he's, he's still involved in music right to this day we had, we had mm. don falcone on the show um okay. a few episodes ago talking about his adaptations of um an alien heat and the sequels and uh and michael mocock is still recording content and and sorry recording material mm-hmm. that's actually appearing on those records so music has been part of him from the very outset i mean i think i believe even as a teenager he played in bands in paris didn't he? Mm. So he's, he's he, as much musician as he is author. Yeah, he started off. I mean, that was his thing that, you know, he, he used to, you know, do the kind of Woody Guthrie impersonations in in, in kind of coffee bars in Soho in the late yeah. 50s. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, as you say, that's in a way how he started off. And, and uh, you know, he often said that, you know, if it wasn't for this or that, he might have gone in that direction. Mm. Uh, as it is, I, I think he probably made the right decision uh, to go uh, to go on the literary side of things. But um but no, I mean, you know, because obviously he makes a, a, an album in uh, in the mid 70s. So at the same time as Warrior on the Edge of Time comes out, he does his own album with uh, the the Deep Fix, yep. New World's Fair, uh, which obviously also features some members of Hawkwind on it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's I think for a lot of people, if they even knew who Michael Moorcott was, it must have seemed pretty weird. Why is this guy kind of making an album now? You know, but um, it actually made perfect sense. You know, he'd been making music as i say since the late 50s yeah i was gonna i was gonna mention new world's fair because i remember picking it up on cd 
and I was I was a little bit puzzled by it. But of course, you, you talk about New World's Fair in the book because it's very much within the orbit of Hawkwind and their various projects in mm. that period that, that you address in the book. And mm. uh, yeah, it's, um, I, th- I think there was a, a release of um, either demos or an expanded release of it as well that popped up a few years ago. And um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm pleased to have it. It's not something I'll stick on my turntable particularly frequently. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of people were a bit nonplussed by it when it came out because they were expecting it was going to be you know, Hawkwind-style space rock, mm. um, but with Michael Moorcock uh, singing. It's, um, it's, it's. I think, as I say in the book, I mean, it's it's perfectly fine, but a lot of the songs on it are exactly the kind of thing that you might come across on Old Grey Whistle Test, you know, yeah. in the 70s, you know, and think, yeah, that was that was quite nice. It's quite musicianly. It was a bit stonesy. It was a bit, you know, um, you know, whatever. And... Um, you know, my point was is that Hawkwind were an antidote to all of that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, they were the anti-old grey whistle test band. And so it was, I think a lot of people were just a bit disappointed that that was kind of what he had come up with. But but interestingly, um, before he recorded the album, uh, he did a, a, a single um, which uh, United Artists refused to put out. Uh, and this <laughs> is, uh, this is Dodgem Dude, Dude yeah. and Star Cruiser. And the, that eventually emerges on the Flickknife label in 1980. And, you know, those two songs are, you know, that they're, they're not brilliant songs, but they've got so much more about them than most of the stuff on the album. They're, they're, you know, they've got a bit of spirit to them. And on that expanded edition of New World's Fair as well, there is an early demo of um, Kings of Speed, which becomes a Hawkwind track, yeah. is the last track on War on the Edge of Time, but actually was originally a, a deep fix track that they never recorded. But the, the demo of it is, is pretty good. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, it doesn't sound like the Hawkwind track, but it's, it's quite Hawkwindish. Mm. And uh, Moorcock actually, you know, often sounds a bit awkward, I find on his records, but he actually really sounds like he's in, in his element on that one. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the decisions you make, at, you know, at the time, you know, he, he, he became, utterly disillusioned with the music business after mm. releasing that one album yeah. you know when i said well why didn't you do any more it was like that was it enough mm. was one was enough mm. i remember listening to to new world's fur and and giving it trying to give it some shakes and there's just a, there's there's a strange quality about it that that there was a moment when i thought was this in in some ways related to some film that never got released or um because it's like it came across more to me like the soundtrack to um, not necessarily the incidental music, but some of the tracks on performance. Mm-hmm. I could almost imagine that um, New World's Fair was a series of tracks that was in some kind of strange psychedelic um, musical film. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it never quite works as a standalone album. No, in a way, it's it's strange that, I mean, having produced so much work that. He didn't just like, you know, because it is a kind of a concept album that he didn't just kind of base it on one of his own kind of books that he'd already written. Yeah, it's it's the problem with it as a concept album is it doesn't, it's it's kind of about a setting this kind of dystopian, funfair, um, you know, with these kind of, you know, various adolescent uh, tearaways in it, uh, and it, so it's kind of sets the scene, but it doesn't really tell a story as such. And you're right, I mean, it feels all like background to something else. Yeah. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the the cover of the album is fantastic and it's got that, you know, this kind of um, 
you know, do not enter contaminated kind yeah. of fairground picture on the back, which is great. And you think, wow, this is going to be good. But it, it just it just doesn't really kind of deliver ultimately. Yeah, it's, it's a shame as well that it, it, my, my kind of feelings of it, it wanting to be involved in something kind of filmic. And mm. yet we did, we did get that one Michael Moorcock adaptation film-wise in the 70s with Robert Fust's The Final Programme. Of course, as you point out in the book, Hawkwind actually do very, very briefly appear in the background in the um, uh, the, the, the pinball machine styled yeah. um, amusement arcade with the uh, with the roller skating nuns and, mm-hmm. and everything else. And, and of course, Moorcock wanted them to do the soundtrack, didn't he? And I don't think he was quite taken with, <laughs> with the actual soundtrack that was, yeah. that was chosen for that movie. No, I mean, that's uh, I thought it's a long time since I actually I keep on meaning to kind of rewatch it. Mm. And uh, it, it, that that really is one of those classic films that you would happen upon late at night and, you know, in the 70s or 80s and think, what the hell is this? Because yeah. it's it's so, you know, overweeningly camp in places. It's kind of hard to watch. But visually, it's clearly, you know, kind of amazing in many ways. Um, but such a missed opportunity but i mean yeah. i don't i don't think you know hawkwind would have been much good as a soundtrack band at, at that point in their career um you know maybe later but uh yeah i mean morcock morcock i think pretty much wrote that film off he was very disappointed in it yeah i, I could understand why but I, i'm i'm actually i actually have a deep love for that movie <laughs> because i think for everything it gets wrong it gets something right Mm. I think John Finch is pretty good as as Jerry Cornelius. I forget the actor's name, but the guy who plays Frank is absolutely perfect. Um, Jenny Runnaker's great as mm. as um, Miss Bruner. Um, you know, okay, it's a little bit cheap in places, and the end is fucking terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the end is really really bad. Uh, but but you know what? It, it has enough going on um, to to make it worthwhile. I think just as mm-hmm. just as a really weird seventies psychedelic film and few springs that strange kind of aesthetic that he has from from when he directed the avengers but i think i think probably more um relevantly things like um uh, the dr phoebe's movies you know, that, yeah that, i mean they, that exactly of a piece you know yeah the same kind of things you'd weirdly come across and i remember being terrified by those when i was young you know the the yeah just awful but yeah. but yeah, you can see where that was coming from. Yeah, weirdly, I, I never knew the final program actually existed as a movie until about nineteen ninety four or something like that. Mm. I was um, I was a nurse working at one of the old psychiatric hospitals outside Hull, and and I went on holiday. And one of the guys I worked with, when I got back, he said it was in the early days of um, satellite TV, and there was a station called Bravo. And when I got back, he said, oh, I recorded a couple of films for you." I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting, and and he recorded because of course you work nights in 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 an old psychiatric hospital, and all you do is drink tea and talk all night to stay awake when you've got a quiet night. And I must have talked about things that I liked, and he recorded the keep and the final program, <laughs> and uh, and and I was I was absolutely blown away because I, I had an ex rental copy of the keep that I wore out in the eighties. But I had no idea there was a final program film. I, was, I said to him, I said it can't be the same thing. He said, "Oh, on the write-up, it's based on the book by Michael Moorcock. And I was like, 
unbelievable. So so I, I got home one night and uh, and I watched that and it was it was like a a, a complete bolt from the blue. It was like a, a lightning bolt from the sky, realizing that this thing even existed. And many many years later, something very very similar happened with. Uh, you know, a slightly different, not slightly different author. I found out there was a a film of Wheels of Terror, the Sven Hassel novel, and I had a, I had a similar reaction. Gets a lot wrong, gets some things right. Is really cheap. <laughs> you know, not a lot like the not a lot like the book, but the fact that it exists makes me really really happy. You know, yeah. and that's yeah. that's the thing with the final program, the movie. The fact that it even exists just makes me happy. It's odd though, isn't it? Where there hasn't been more Moorcock, um, you know, kind of on film. Uh, and on on TV, I mean, obviously, you know, there's endless rumours about Elric films and yeah. series, and I, I, the BBC supposedly are working on a on a Hawkmoon um, series. I don't yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not on Facebook, but one of the guys who follows the podcast is on Facebook, and apparently, uh, Michael had said on um, because he visits the the Mocock fan page, he said that he's he's read the script and it's a great script. And it's apparently it's proceeding, but not so good news on on the Elric thing. It's just it's just not getting picked up. And I think now that the Witcher TV show has happened, I think that's put another nail in its coffin, probably, which is a, a real shame. And in some ways, it's a shame, and in some ways, it's probably a good thing because I just can't help but think that just completely fuck it up. Hmm. So. What I would uh, what I'd actually love to see is a, is an Oswald Bastable. Yeah, absolutely. Series. I mean, I think that probably I, I, I've reread a, a couple of. Morcock books recently, and and uh, the Land Leviathan was one mm. of them, which I've always absolutely loved. I think it's one of his best books, and uh, you know, I, I think those books would make a, a super uh, a super series. They really would. Um, and you sometimes wonder, is it just because people don't know this stuff's out there? Because I mean, you know, they, they kind of should do because I mean, these books are held up now as the you know some of the the the, the original steampunk books. So That's you know, right, you, yeah. think that, you know that people would take notice. An interesting thing I find um, about uh, the whole Oswald Bastable books is I've got it in my head that Robert Calvert was quite influenced by them when he returned to Hawkwind in the mid-70s and then adopted this kind of, I don't know, air, air pilot come Bedouin warrior type persona. And he mentions in an interview that he's a big fan of Warlord of the Air. And uh, I, I've, I've kind of got it in my head that he took some kind of influence from those books for the uh, the persona he adopted on stage with Hawkwind, uh, I have no proof for this whatsoever. But again, it's, <laughs> it's one of these things where it feels yeah. like it's all in the same universe to me. You know, kind of Calvert strutting around on stage with a bandana around his head, uh, flying goggles, pair of sabers in his hands. You know, that that to me fits totally into that universe. It would be a weird coincidence, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. It would mm-hmm. be a very weird coincidence if if there wasn't some kind of connection there. But yeah, y- yeah you're absolutely right. I, I think. Steampunk is a thing now, isn't it? You know, it's, it's it's a big thing. It's really, really popular. The whole the self steampunk aesthetic is shot through a lot of the sci-fi that we see on TV now. I think Shadow and Bone on Netflix mm-hmm. um, is 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 very, very steampunk. And there was that um, there was uh, a film came out a couple of years ago with Hugo Weaving that was about London kind of on wheels chasing oh. down other cities, which actually is just is pulled straight from Revenge of the Rose in many, right. many ways. Yeah. Um, another example of Moorcock's influence kind of being shot through everything. So that that kind of um, marketplace is there. It exists. Yeah. And I, I would love somebody to pick up 
the Bastable books and, and make a run at them. But I suppose even amongst a lot of people, a lot of fantasy people who, who really like you know, Elric for the most part, because Elric is, is the most enduring mm-hmm. imagery of, of all of Bocock's work, it, it doesn't seem to have the 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 brand recognition that things like Elric no. have. But no. but to be honest, I wouldn't have said Hawkmoon did either, and the working on a Hawkmoon series. So who knows? I mean, I, I had War all there because it was one of the it was one of the first two Mocock books that my, that my granddad gave me um, back in the early eighties, the original Ace Pocket Books edition of Warlord of the Air, and I, I absolutely adore it. I read it again every couple of years, even when I went through my massive barren period of not reading any Mocock for the thick end of twenty years. No matter the time streams, those three books were all way, were never too far away from me because I just think they're absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. But yeah. getting back to your book, yeah. So you took a really interesting approach with the book. It's it's not it's not a strict biography. You've you've taken a, a very specific approach where you you look at snatches of time and talk through um, what they kind of achieved and what they went through that specific period. Then you do tag by tag breakdowns of the albums. And there are also some really interesting kind of essays about things around Hawkwind and things around their influences. Why did you come up with that approach? What what was it about that appealed to you? Um, I think when I originally set out to do the book, it was originally it was those essays that I had in mind. It was kind of gonna take a completely thematic approach to Hawkwind and say, okay, let's talk about Hawkwind in connection with psychedelia, let's talk about it in connection with science fiction with you know the the, the kind of the, the apocalyptic culture of the 70s blah 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 uh and then but at the same time i thought oh, the thing that really bugs me about music biographies is that often they don't really talk very much about the music you know they're, they're, you know albums are kind of dispensed within a page and it's like this is actually why people get into bands really you know it's the music so you've got to you know when people say oh, it's very difficult to write about music and it is yeah, it is difficult but it's not impossible you know and, and to me that often just kind of smacks of laziness and uh, you know not really wanting to kind of do the work and so anyway so I wanted to write at length on the music so so then I was like okay so I'm going to do like things on on each of the albums and then I I hadn't originally intended to interview quite as many people as I did but I ended up interviewing loads of people and I was thinking I can't just kind of throw in a few quotes here and there you know I I need to use these interviews and so then you get the interview blocks and at some point it's like oh my god sake you know at that point I then end up kind of writing the traditional or the more traditional kind of chronological biography kind of bits to link it all together really and so it evolves in this kind of four part way and and that's why you've got these kind of four elements in the book but I I think it I think it kind of works uh and I think it's not too jarring um you know as i say in the introduction you may feel some sideways motion through time but um but you know for the most part i think it i think it works in people and i, I wanted something in a way that people could just dip in and out of mm. you know rather than kind of you know starting of let's tell the story of you know how dave brock came to be dave rocket because really i wasn't really interested in that um not because it's not an interesting story but because you know you've got something like ian abrams um uh, Sonic Assassins, which is excellent in that, you know, he does all of that stuff. So that's already been done. So I wasn't interested in doing that. And I was much more interested in just getting to the point of trying to, as I say, position Hawkwind as this really interesting cultural force in, in 70s uh, music and also in, you know, British society to a certain extent as well. And, and particularly how it then links into, you know, subcultures which turn into punk and post-punk and 
and what have you, you know, just the fact that, you know, nobody seemed to get to realise at the time. It's like, where have all these punks come from? They all come from Hawkwind. They're all Hawkwind fans. Mm. You know, it's just that they cut their hair. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that completely passed, you know, the media by at the time because they didn't want to kind of write that or admit that. Uh, I mean, even came from the same bloody place. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be a detective to kind of work out, you know, who was influencing, you know, the, the Clash and the Damned and, and the Sex Pistols in West London, you know. Yeah. And it's, I think it really works because, you, you know, you've, you've got, um, it keeps it fresh constantly. And uh, I love Sonic Assassins and we had Ian on uh, mm. about seven or eight shows ago and um, it's a great book. He was a great guest as well. Uh, but I, I love the fact that it also, basically it's, it's listeners' notes as well. Um, and so when I was sat reading it, it, it just instantly, whilst it's interesting and, and, and the, the essays were good, but actually it made me want to go back and listen to the records again. Because reading the, the track-by-track breakdown, I was I was reading them and, and just discovering things that I'd missed, and it made me want to listen to the albums again. And actually, it's, it's always great when you read a book and you learn a new a few new things, and I learned something new about every album, which is great. But there's also a couple of other things I learned, not least of which is... Delia Derbyshire had a band outside of the Radiophonic Workshop, and I had no idea. So that there are also references to bands and music that I've never heard of and never come across before that sends me scurrying away down a new rabbit hole, and that's what I want. That's what I want from 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 reading something like that. So I think it I think it works really really well. So yeah, I, I learned a few things from from well, I learned a lot of things from this, but a few really interesting things like the Delia Derbyshire um, thing, which was a real surprise for me that. I really need to check out what what were your favourite things that you learned from researching and writing this that you weren't aware of previously. Um, <laughs> that is a good question. I, I mean, a, a lot of what I was doing is that I I kind of knew a lot of this stuff anyway, and and a lot of it was just kind of fact checking and putting things into the right place. And you know, the stuff that I learned that really excited me would just seem incredibly nerdy. Um, <laughs> like you know, for instance finally kind of finally establishing you know exactly when you know Hawkwind recorded their BBC radio sessions and what they played and just sorting that out was was quite something but um, one of my favorite well the things that I through my research I discovered was um, I tracked I mean one of the crazy things about Hawkwind the 1970s is that you know for a period from about 1972 to 75 they were a seriously big band i mean they were a proper big rock band um you know they were on the front page of place they were selling out you know venues full of thousands and thousands of people there's hardly any film of hawkwind in the 1970s you've got the silver machine video is still the best representation of hawkwind on film in the 1970s there's practically nothing not from you know uh, any second division band you can could have put it into you know, uh, YouTube, and there'll be some concert that they did in Sweden. There'll be, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing for Hawkwind. So it was really quite a thrill for me to actually track down some uh, Hawkwind footage, um, which had been shot at their um, Wembley pool gig, uh, which is now Wembley Arena, uh, Wembley Empire Pool um, in 1973. And uh, I, I, I won't go into the story as to how I found it, but, you know, the, 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 the lady who had filmed it was still living, was living in Berlin. And I managed to get in contact with her. And uh, she said, oh, yes, that, yeah, 
yeah, it rings a bell actually, it rings a bell. And, you know, it's one of these things you're thinking, okay, you know, she'll kind of say, oh yes, but that was, that was a long, many years ago. And then she emailed me back like 24 hours saying, oh, I've just looked in my archive and I've got it. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, and that's, it's one of those moments where you suddenly realize you've, you, it's not the Holy Grail, but you've, you've discovered a bit of the Grail at least. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just know how important that's going to be to other Hawkwind fans as well. Um, so things like that were actually, you know, the, the, the really, the really juicy stuff, but there was all kinds of, you know, when, once, once you're writing a book, your kind of ears and your radar is constantly open for anything that you might be able to use or might be interesting. And my, my personal, I think one of my favorite pieces of trivia that arose uh, while I was writing the book was that, um, when, um, Del Detmar left the band or was planning to leave the band in 1974. One of the people who was mooted as his replacement um, was Michael Nyman, um, <laughs> <laughs> who was, you know, at the time he was, you know, uh, I, you know, just writing about classical music for yeah. magazines. Um, I don't, I don't think he'd had, you know, any of his comp compositions recorded. Uh, but yes, he had, he con contemplated taking over the. The keyboard spot in in Hawkwind, um, wow, which would <laughs> it's just it's a kind of ridiculous idea, but I don't know it might have been quite interesting actually. Well, the, the soundtrack to the piano would have been much more interesting had he spent a couple of years with Hawkwind in the seventies. I think. Well, if you actually listen to all of those early Peter Greenaway soundtracks, they're all based around looping and repetitive figures. I mean, yeah. he was into you know kind of minimalism and repetition uh you know which is very much in the hawkwind universe uh maybe a different kind but yeah. you know it's interesting that that kind of wow that that is a really kind of interesting interesting little tip but i think yeah well, i'm i'm now doubting myself thinking i fucked up and michael nyman didn't do the soundtrack to the piano but uh, yeah. everybody don't fact check me just just <laughs> let me have this one so this this video i know you said that you're not going to go into how you found it but where is it what are yeah. you going to do with it how can how can people see this Okay, so um, at this point, um, it's I ended up being a kind of middleman in between Cynthia, the uh, 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 Cynthia Biat uh, in Ber uh, Berlin, and Warner Music, who now kind of own the, the kind of early seventies uh, Hawkwing catalog, and um, basically she sold the film to Warner Music, right. and they are in the process of restoring it. And unfortunately, this kind of obviously then happened uh, or COVID happened and completely put a break on that. But I do need to actually drop Warner a line. Um, there's a guy there called Nigel Reeve, who is basically the custodian of the Hawkwind archive. You know, he, he was he was with EMI and then EMI got bought by Warner. And he's basically been there the whole the whole time along. And he's been responsible for some of the amazing reissues of their, their back catalogue. Um, so I'm I'm kind of in contact with him. So I need to basically just kind of chase him and see what's happening with it. But I, I'm I'm very much hopeful that it, it will at some point be available commercially and people will be able to to see it. Um, I mean it, it's it's um it's silent film. So one of the things they need to do is um kind of sync it with existing material. Yeah. Um, but so restoring it. But it's one of these things. I mean, you know, it's amazing that it was still playable. You know, yeah. after all those years. But uh, I, I have obviously seen some of it um, in its in its early state, and um, uh, you know from Cynthia, and it's um, it's amazing. Um, 
some of that film did actually was had been used previously a, a mystery item that emerged um, when Nigel Nigel Reeve was doing a, a search through their their archive they came across this film for Urban Gorilla a promo film for Urban Gorilla which had never been broadcast at the time uh, and it, it had this footage on it and everybody was like where is this actually from and and, and it turns out it's part of Cynthia's film um, so, you know, they obviously kind of filmed the entire concert. They used that, but it's one of these things that everybody had, you know, had forgotten it existed. It was found in a dusty box. Um, so that, that, that's kind of out there, although you can't really find it on YouTube, but, uh, between that film, that urban gorilla promo and, uh, the silver machine promo, it, it's really the only significant evidence of Hawkwind on, on film in the 1970s, though on saying that literally a few weeks ago, um, an amazing piece of film emerged on YouTube of Hawkwind playing at the Windsor Free Festival in 1973, um, which if you put that into YouTube, you'll be able to find. And that is also uh, incredible. Mm. Uh, if, if any Hawkwind fans haven't seen that, immediately go to YouTube and put in Windsor 73 Hawkwind and uh, take a look. Well, one of the good things about following you on Twitter, actually, is you keep a, up a, a, a regular feed of mm. interesting Hawkwind tidbits. Mm. So people, if you're interested in all this stuff, follow Joe on uh, on Twitter for sure, because you're never short of a few excellent Hawkwind facts or posters or links. It's a, it's a terrific feed to follow if you're a Hawkwind fan. Thank you. Yeah. So, interestingly, the book kind of ends at the end of the 70s. Mm-hmm. So what's next? Are you intending to cover the 80s? Are you a 70s only guy? Um I'm not I'm not going to cover the 80s no. I'm not going to no. Uh I am it's not that I'm a 70s only guy but that is for me it's it's the music of Hawkwind that's that, that I'm closest to mm. and I feel is the most important and it's where they say all of their important stuff. Um so a lot a lot of people have have asked that but I'm afraid that I am not going to be writing any more about Hawkwind. Um, however, and you heard it here first, um, there may be, I, I may well be writing some more about Robert Calvert uh, and his post-Hawkwind career um, in the nearish future. Uh, I did an article about him for Electronic Sound magazine a few months, a couple of months ago. And I have to say that did whet my appetite to do more. So that may be a, a thing, um, but I'm working on something else with Strange Attractor, um, my publisher at the moment. Um, I kind of, I can't really give any details away about it, but it's fair to say it's a long-term project and it doesn't just involve me. It involves other writers as well. Mm. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, undoubtedly I will still be talking about Hawkwind for a long time to come on, on Twitter and uh, I'm actually uh, doing my first in-person book event uh, this Thursday um, at a pub called the Wanstead Tap in uh, in uh, Newham, I think it is. Um, so that's going to be quite daunting. And I think I may have a, another couple of speaking events later in the year as well. So I'm still going to be talking about Hawkwind for a, for a while yet, but um I was going to say I'm not writing about them anymore. Actually, that's not entirely true because <laughs> Prog Magazine, uh, I just remembered, how could I forget? Prog Magazine have asked me to write a feature um, on In Search of Space, uh, 
for what I assume is their October issue, mm. which is when uh, and it's basically 50 years of In Search of Space. And I think it's the cover feature. Hooray. So I am actually writing that. So I completely misspoke earlier, but but there's not going to be any any more books on Hawkwind, that's for sure. Now do you see why I mistrust music journalists? I know, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. of course, you, you are a prolific music journalist and, and your um, your articles have been in multiple magazines. The, I think you've written for The Quietus and various other outlets as well. So, yeah. you know, people should watch out for your stuff. But also big, um, big props to your publisher, Stranger Tractor, as well, because I've... I've got my wonderful hardcover copy of Appendix N by uh, by Stranger Tractor here by my side, which was uh, a wonderful, was it a Christmas or birthday present? I can't remember from my mate Yaki. So Stranger Tractor Press, people should actually check out their website too because mm-hmm. they really are producing some fantastic publications. Really, really cool. Really, really yeah. fantastic small press. So what else have you got on in the future then? You're not writing any more about Hawkwind, except you are. And you're doing some stuff about Bob Calvert, but what else is really catching your eye and really inspiring you at the moment? Um, or your ear? Oh, my ear. Um, let me think. Um, this is the point. It's like people could have said, oh, what are you listening to at the moment? Your mind goes um, completely blank. Um, you know, in a way, it's funny because I do kind of review quite a bit for magazines. And to be honest, it is actually mostly reviews rather than articles these days um i'm constantly listening to new music and, and actually get a chance to listen to that much old music on saying that um the upcoming uh van de Graaff generator charisma box set um is spectacular um if you're a van de Graaff generator fan it's amazing because um it features uh, an entire unreleased concert which is uh from paris in 1976 which is great but also there's been a a uh, proper stereo remix done of uh, four of their albums, um, H2E, Porn Hearts, God Bluff and Still Life, which are mind-blowingly good. Um, so that's quite exciting because alongside Hawkwind, Van de Graaff, a, genera- a generator, are definitely kind of one of my big bands. In terms of uh, kind of modern bands, my album of the year so far, and I think will probably remain so, is the new Liars album, uh, which is called The Apple Drop, um, which is, I mean, has another band who's been going, I think, for nearly 20 years now, and I've always managed to, you know, like the fall sound, sound the same, but sound completely different from mm. album to album. Uh, and I think The Apple Drop, after 20 years, may be their best album. Um, it's certainly the kind of album you could imagine Radiohead desperately wanting to make but never making. Um, it's in that kind of territory, but it's fantastic. Um, I'm a big fan as well of a guy called Concretism, or he goes under the name of Concretism. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, and I, I think the his new album, uh, Telefusion, is also one of my albums of the year. Just that incredible, um, you know, kind of radiophonic, electronic mm-hmm hauntological sound uh it's a terrible cliche these days but i mean he he really really if 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 you've you know were a big boards of canada fan and have got a bit disappointed with their recent output then then this is your go-to guy um not that he just sounds like boards of canada but it's the same kind of vibe and telefusion is absolutely uh amazing um and one other album i'd kind of like to um kind of give a shout out for is by a lady called 
Georgia Chalmers. Um, Georgia Chalmers, Georgia is spelled J-O-R-J-A. She's Australian. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, anyway. Um, <laughs> she's, um, and she is actually the saxophonist in Brian Ferry's backing band. Um, she's very accomplished. Um, but she makes solo albums as well. She's made a couple of solo albums um, which are very, very uh, electronic, um, very much in the kind of Blade Runner, Vangelis, um, David Lynch, Twin Peaks, electronic mm. type vein. And she sings as well and obviously plays the sax. And I think her stuff is amazing. Um, it, it, from that description, it, you think, oh, yeah, it's another one of those or oh, those kind of... But really, it, it, it's incredible. Um, it's called Night Train. I think that's right, Night Train. Um, and that is a fantastic album as well. Um, just just incredible, yeah. So, you know, the, you're constantly... I'm constantly coming across, you know, amazing new music. Mm. Um, so it's not just that I'm living in the past and, you know, even though it, it might seem that way... Um, when you uh, you know kind of look at me on Twitter, but then you know when I when I tweet about new stuff, it gets like half a like. <laughs> you know, like. Not that I'm driven by likes or anything like that, you know. Whereas you know I, I can like you say I'll throw up a happy birthday Dave Brock post yeah. and you know I'll get a lot more likes. But I'm I'm, so, I'm not exactly hitting the K's. Let's put it that way. But as you say, I think if you're interested in, I describe myself as a Hawkwind trivia node. And if you're interested in Hawkwind trivia, then yes, I, I probably am a, a good person to follow on Twitter. Yeah, well, I'll definitely check Georgia out. But I've got a I've got a second concretism. They're they're one of the I've I've mentioned on on previous shows how I, I basically source all of my new music from Bandcamp for the most part. Mm-hmm. And concretism is is one of the the real finds. And I think I came across them because maybe maybe three or four years ago. There was one of these offers that you occasionally get on Bandcamp where um, some, I don't know, inverted commas, label or something makes an offer where you, you can get half a dozen albums with download codes. And, mm. and I bought one of those and there was a Concretism album, vinyl, and a couple of singles by other people and some other bits and bobs. And uh, and that Concretism album is absolutely terrific. And I didn't realise they had a new one out, so I really need to pull my finger out and get back to their page. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think it's actually better than the first album. Um, I think it's amazing. I, I had a similar thing. I think I came across him three or four years ago. I used to get a, like an email from Norman Records in, yeah. in Leeds, and, and they it, were Norman Records, yeah, Norman Records. Yeah, they they were early. And most of his stuff, as you say, was just digital only. But he had done one vinyl mm. EP, which they talked about and raved about. And it's just one of those things, you know. Often you read something and you think, oh, that's interesting, and you forget about it. But it just must have been one of those things. Where I thought, oh, that's interesting, and actually went on to bank camp and had a listen it was like yeah. oh wow this is really really good yeah um so yeah I, I can't recommend him highly enough um you know there's obviously as we were talking about right at the start there's so much music out there there's you know everything is accessible sometimes it's difficult to know when to start particularly with something like electronic music mm. but he is a, a total standout artist for me mm. and um if there's actually one other band sorry i just want to give a little plug for um this was from last year um, it's a French band called Slift, S-L-I-F-T. Uh-huh. And they are, I think their last album is called Umon, which is U-M-O-N. And uh, 
they are they're a space rock band and uh that Oman is is it's got to be the best space rock album I've heard in absolutely years and years and years and years they are fantastic they're just a trio they make an amazing sound um you know they it starts off very very kind of heavy but as it goes along there's more melody then there's more synths and it's 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 just a tremendous album i can't recommend that highly enough Mm, fantastic well actually on on the on the concrete front and another great discovery i made on Bandcamp not too long ago was that there were a couple of whole bands which had um a lot of the same members just with one added or one taken away back in the early 90s one called warp spasm and one called cosmic juggernaut and I came across um, some of their uh, eight-track recorded EPs on Bandcamp. And actually the guy behind them, Tommy Concrete, who still records as Tommy Concrete and Concrete Head, and his other band, I think, are on their Doom Lord as well. All his stuff's on Bandcamp as well. So Bandcamp continues to be a true treasure trove. But going back very briefly to that um, that Concretism album, or that EP, when I got it, I got that real feel of oh, I've got a precious piece of vinyl in my hand because it's got that beautiful, um, brutalist architecture mm. kind of. I think it's a concrete tower block or something yeah. on the cover, and I just sat and stared at that for ten minutes, just as a wonderful thing to have in one's hand. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Right? Is there anything else that you want to talk about? The the one thing I, I would just like to to flag up. So we talked about Twitter, but. Anybody who's read the book or is interested in Hawkwind or is thinking of reading the book, um, please go to the Days of the Underground website, which is daysoftheunderground.com, because it's while there's a lot of kind of stuff on there about all of the amazing reviews the book's had, um, it's not just a, a promotional device. It's basically an online companion to the book. There's a huge addendum up there, which you can sit down with the book and you can go through all of the extra bits of stuff that I found out and it's got a few <clears throat> corrections in it as well. Um, and it's also like a, a big um, collection of posters, of uh, pictures, um, of mutant variants, as I call of the various Hawkwind albums in the 70s, all of the different versions from around the world. Um, and it's basically hours of entertainment. Um, so if you like the book, please do go to the website because uh, there's lots of lots of stuff there for you. Super. Well, you know what, Joe? Thanks ever so much for coming on, talking about the book, which is great. I think the book is still available at all good stockists mm -hmm. and easy to get hold of. Um, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking Hawkwind and Moorcock. And uh, I'd love to talk to you again at some point in the future about what you do next. Love to do that. Thanks very much, Andy. Cheers. Cheers. Massive thanks to Joe for coming on the show to talk all things Moorcock and Hawkwind. Days of the Underground is available via Stranger Tractor Press and, as well as the usual online places, actual real bookshops. In other news, we picked up some more reviews on Apple Podcasts. The first one actually dates back to last September, but I only just spotted it as Apple Podcasts, for some reason, separates reviews by regions. So this was our first US review, and it was care of Knight of Cups. The Moorcock conversation you want, but so rarely get to have. Not a nerdy in-joke podcast, but a set of smart and down-to-earth conversations in and around Moorcock's work and his influences. If you don't know how very much Moorcock has influenced genre media then you have a set of works and worlds awaiting you. 
with an envy I share for you to discover. Start here, then read. A lot. Thank you, Sir Knight, for those kind words. The second review is more recent, and care of Asako So. And he said, A fabulously warm and fun podcast. I love listening to the host discussing the work of Mocock with his various interlocutors, and the important side reviews of cafes and beers. The show works through the novels of Mocock and the associated media, including RPGs, and are great fun and very informed. Michael Mocock is hugely important to fantasy fiction, gaming, and wider culture. A great listen. Thank you so much for that, Asako Sir. Very on brand for this podcast too to have a pronunciation challenge, and for me to do it whole style. So don't at me, take it up with your interlocutors. It's time now to thank our patrons, and I'm going to start with our tearless champions, Tim Cardos, Sebastian Weetabix, and Anthony Piconti. And to our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Tony Malazzo, and to our proud, haughty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Graham Holden, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Steve Round, Asako So, Miles Reed Lobato, and Tom Murphy, and of course to our mighty patron demons, Andy Clark, Ed Scott, Gareth Wilson, Paul Hillary, Mark Main, Neil Burton, Norman Beresford, Randall Gatlin, Joe Monty, Will Jamison, and finally, Robert McMillan. Robert, thanks for the letters. Phil and I get a little thrill each time we see that airmail envelope on the doormat, there's just something wonderful and tangible about snail mail, especially when it comes from the other side of the world, and even more so hand-typed. Your letter from a couple of months ago shared some observations on Mocock that you've kindly given me the permission to read on the show, but I'm going to save that for a future episode, as they provide some really great talking points. But, enough of my yakking for now. Until next time, you can gab with us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram on the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and that has a few patron exclusives. So take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>